Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hey everyone, I am still in Bali, going on week three of being here. It's funny, this was supposed to be a 10-day trip and it turned into basically 25 days, which is really nothing I've ever done before. I mean, I've taken long trips, but to go somewhere and just be like, hey, I'm going to stay. I talked about it in the a bit in the last episode. It's been um, rather disorienting to be able to have that sort of freedom to just do that. Um, also, there's some stone cutting going on in the background. It's a little bit challenging to find total peace and quiet here, so I apologize if you guys can hear that. Um, hopefully it's not too awful sounding. Um so yeah, I think the last time I recorded uh, an intro, I was in Changu. I don't even know when that was, I guess last week. Um, we are in Ubud now. We started in Ubud, went to Changu, went to Uluwatu. We spent a night in another beach town, sort of in the middle of nowhere that I can't even remember the name of, which was not the super memorable um, but so far, out of Ubud, Changu, Uluwatu, and random beach town that I can't remember, I definitely feel like Ubud is definitely the winner. Um, it's in the middle of the island. The rest of those places are down by the ocean. It was definitely really nice to be in Changu by the ocean. Uluwatu was really cool, too. It was sort of like a Malibu vibe up on uh, some cliffs. So that was definitely cool, but there's just something about the energy and the rhythm of Ubud and kind of being right in the middle of the jungle, yet in a city that's kind of village-like. It's just super cool and super comfortable. Um, I've definitely reached the part of the trip I'm leaving here on February 4th. I was actually supposed to leave today, but extended my trip another week, um, so Two weeks have passed, one week to go, so I feel like I'm in that stage of the vacation where I'm counting down the days until I leave, which is moderately depressing. Trying not to do that, trying to stay present, but it's definitely amazing how quickly a month goes by. Um, I was going to say time flies when you're having fun and then decided that was too cheesy and then said it anyway, um, but definitely very true. I was just saying this morning that it's going to, I feel like it's going to be more culture shock for me to go home 
to LA than it is, than it was rather for me to come here, which is super weird. Um, this is definitely as far away from home as I've ever been. And yet felt like I needed little to no adjustment. I feel like even going to Europe was more culture shock than coming here. It's just something about this place is so chill and so welcoming and so like what life is supposed to be. It's slow. People are friendly. It's easy to get around. There aren't giant freeways with tons of traffic. You're not sitting in a car all day long. You're not sitting in a car at all. Mostly you get around on scooters. Um, you know, there's no like crazy intersections. I was, I was talking to a friend the other day too about like how I think there are studies that show that when there are no red lights that people get into less accidents than they do when there are like the need to coordinate and cooperate with your feller fellow traveler on the road lends itself to just much more of a enjoyable, you know, travel experience. Um, but, you know, I've definitely been thinking a lot about in terms of staying here and how comfortable it is. You know, I've always sort of felt this sense of responsibility to being in the United States, particularly during these times of things completely falling apart and feeling like, I mean, obviously I have this podcast about saving the world and so much of it comes from my um, Western American perspective about all of these things that need to change. And it's like interesting being here. Obviously this is a part of the world and climate change as just one example affects us everywhere, but it's certainly pretty astonishing to recognize, um, like how much less stressed I am here. And I've been thinking a lot about stress and relaxation and responsibility how I've got, I feel like I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders um, in order to fix all the things that are going on. And it's like to play around with the concept of like, not that I'm going to do this, but <laughs> at least temporarily, like being a bit of an expat and um, just kind of being like, uh, like deal with your own problems yourself, US. Like I can't fix this on my own and I'm just going to go live a happy life. And, um, it's brought up a lot. It reminds me of an article that I posted. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I have a Patreon. This ad is, this ad, this podcast is totally ad free. Um, and the only money that I get from it is from people that listen that donate a little bit of money per month because they enjoy what they hear and the content that I share. Um, so if you're not a part of that, go head on over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Anya Cates, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. One of the many perks that I offer on Patreon is a weekly column of inspiration called um, Minerva's Muse. So I share like an article that I've read that week, a song or an album that I'm listening to, basically like something to read, watch, look at, places to go, things to donate to, etc. And the article I shared on uh, an issue I posted a couple days ago is uh, called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It's on BuzzFeed. I forget the author, but I'm sure if you Google it, you can find it. Um, but it was really fascinating. I've read it a couple times and I relate to it a lot. And um, the premise of, of her article is about how 
these monotonous tasks like cooking dinner and um, taking out the trash. Like there's something about these pretty easy, you know, tasks that all of us have been doing for millennia for a long time, or maybe not millennia, but for a long time, I guess we weren't taking out the trash as hunter gatherers necessarily. Um, but how these just like boring, stupid tasks have for whatever reason become debilitating and like that there seems like there's no solution to those things. Like these things totally never end that there's this anxiety with just existing. And I totally relate to this. I feel like when I'm home, to like cook a meal is this awful thing that I have to do that I feel completely exhausted and incapable of doing. And I always think about like, do I just hate myself? Like, because I really don't want to, I don't have the energy to take care of myself. And like, where is that mindset coming from? And I've been thinking about it a lot here because being in Bali, I've sort of like taken a break from my life in many ways, extending this trip. I'm sort of being a little bit more lax about my to-do list. And I've, I've tried to incorporate this mindset into my life before coming here as well. But being here has allowed me to do it even more to be like, do I really need to work that hard? Like, what is it like to just exist and live? Like, do I always have to be like running from task to task and now I need to like meditate in order to recover from the work and like do this face mask because it's like on my list and like self-care has become a task. Um, anyway, I wanted to read you guys some from this article. It's probably it's a few paragraphs long, but considering this is a millennial themed podcast, I thought you guys might relate to it. And it's certainly something I think to think about. So this is a couple of different excerpts, but she says, even the trends millennials have popularized like athleisure speak to our self-optimization. Yoga pants might look sloppy to your mom, but they're efficient. You can transition seamlessly from an exercise class to a Skype meeting to child pickup. We use Fresh Direct and Amazon because the time they save allows us to do more work. This is why the fundamental criticism of millennials, that we're lazy and entitled, is so frustrating. We hustle so hard that we figured out how to avoid wasting time eating meals and are called entitled for asking for fair compensation and benefits, like working remotely so we can live in affordable cities adequate health care or 401ks so we can theoretically stop working at some point before the day we die. We're called whiny for talking frankly about just how much work we do or how exhausted we are by it. But because overworking for less money isn't always visible, because job hunting now means going on LinkedIn, because overtime now means replying to emails in bed, the extent of our labor, labor is often ignored or degraded. The thing about American labor, after all, is that we're trained to erase it. Anxiety is medicated, burnout is treated with therapy that slowly become normalized and yet softly stigmatized. Time in therapy, after all, is time you could be working. No one would have told my grandmother that churning butter and doing the wash by hand wasn't work, but planning a week of healthy meals for a family of four figuring out the grocery list, finding time to get to the grocery store, and then preparing and cleaning up after those meals while holding down a full-time job, that's just motherhood, not labor. 
To describe millennial burnout accurately is to acknowledge the multiplicity of our lived reality, that we're not just high school graduates or parents or knowledge workers, but all of the above, while recognizing our status quo. We're deeply in debt, working more hours and more jobs for less pay and less security, struggling to achieve the same standards of living as our parents, operating in psychological and physical precariousness, all while being told that if we just work harder, meritocracy will prevail and will begin thriving. The carrot dangling in front of us is the dream that the to-do list will end, or at least become far more manageable. But individual action isn't enough. Personal choices alone won't keep the planet from dying or get Facebook to quit violating our privacy. To do that, you need paradigm-shifting change, which helps explain why so many millennials increasingly identify with democratic socialism and are embracing unions. We're beginning to understand what ails us, and it's not something an oxygen facial or a treadmill desk can fix. Until or in lieu of a revolutionary overthrow of the capitalist system, how can we hope to lessen or prevent instead of just temporarily staunch burnout? Change might come from legislation or collective action or continued feminist advocacy, but it's folly to imagine it will come from companies themselves. Our capacity to burn out and keep working is our greatest value. So I've just been thinking of like, okay, how can we change our value? How can we redefine our greatest value? And maybe it's more mindset than anything else. You know, in this article, she goes on to talk about like, well, you know, what really is the solution to this? Like adding more items to the to-do list, even if it's like to, to do, cut out the to-do list. Like it's this never ending cycle. And that's really what the definition of burnout is. You can't really solve for it. So I think I mentioned this quote in the first episode that I posted. I think it's an Ionesco quote that revolution is a change in the state of consciousness. And I've been grappling with that so much on this trip about how challenging it's been to just fucking relax a little bit. And how we change our mindset, it's going to differ from person to person. I recognize that I have the privilege to stay in Bali for 25 days, but I do think all of us to some extent, regardless of our age, have the ability to shift our mindset. And it's just, I think when we do that, I think our actions change. And I think then the impact on the world changes. So I think it's time to get creative and I'm going home on February 4th, but maybe I'll be back. You know, I think about all of the ways that probably as a result of being a millennial and being raised in a way where I've always felt that I needed to acquire more skills and, you know, develop more, um, things to add to my resume. Like I really do have a lot of stuff that I've, uh, allowed myself to learn in order to make money. And so being here, it's like, okay, well, maybe I can't do that type of work, but I can do this type of work and I can make money in this way. And like, fuck, I can go work at a fucking restaurant if I really needed to, you know, um, I have a friend who was talking about who does work at a restaurant who was saying that like, she keeps being offered all of these promotions and she doesn't want to take them because it's like, she doesn't, why she feels fine. She feels comfortable. Why chase after this hierarchical idea that we need to work harder and achieve more and 
you know, I'm personally definitely the type of person that like needs a mission and a project. I thrive in that sense. If I don't have something that I'm working on, I definitely feel like I, you know, I don't feel like my life has as much meaning, but that thing that I'm striving to doesn't have to be work. It can be, you know, and that's what I've been trying to do a lot recently in terms of my podcast and the type of work that I do, just like making it more enjoyable and something that doesn't feel as much like work. Um, but yeah, so that's a little bit rambly, but that's, that's really what I've been thinking of. And it's, it's definitely been useful to take me out of my immediate environment to think about all of the ways in which my life has become so much a series of endless tasks that feel daunting and it's hard to enjoy life when I feel like anything that I do is checking some sort of box. So being here and just like, oh, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. You know, I'm going to jump in the pool right now. Eh, eh, maybe I'll push that back. Like the world isn't going to blow up. I'm not going to die. Like I'm still making money and it's okay. But it's been pretty astonishing to realize how much that stuff controls my life. And I assume that probably affects or not assume. I know that that affects a lot of other people my age. So anyway, something to think about. Um, on a slightly different note, uh, this episode uh, also deals with a shift in mindset, but about something slightly differently, which is the mother wound. Um, I will let the episode talk about and educate you all on what the mother wound is, but I actually have so much to say about this topic. I think I mentioned this on the last episode as well, that I think I'm going to record my solo episode for Patreon this month about the mother wound and patriarchy, actually, and gender and the Me Too movement, which is a little ballsy of me because that's such a taboo, sensitive subject. But I really have a lot to say. It's just a matter of me figuring out how to organize my thoughts about it. So I'm going to talk more about it. It'll be sort of like... um a part two of this episode where I just ramble on about <laughs> some more, um, things that I've been thinking about in this respect. Um, but today this episode is with Bethany Webster. I found her work some point over the past couple of years when I was going through a really hard time dealing with a lot of issues with my own mother wound with my own mother. I share some personal details on this episode and I've shared personal details about my life in that respect before. Um, but I found some sort of like just, you know, downloadable PDF opt-in that she had on her website. And I was pretty astonished and relieved to like read words that defined so much of the feelings that I was having. Um, so I'm really excited that I had, Bethany on the show. This is a really challenging topic to discuss and work with. It's very, very taboo. But if you know me, I'm really into taboos. So <laughs> bring it on. Um, but yeah, I'm going to let the episode speak for itself. Again, if you want to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates. You can also always leave a review or some stars on iTunes. That's free, takes two seconds, and it helps the show reach more people. You can also just recommend an episode to a friend if you think they'd enjoy it. Uh, that goes a long way, and I would really appreciate it. So I uh, hope you enjoy the show and catch you on the other side. All right, cool. Well, thank you, Bethany. I'm really I, I was excited to have this conversation. I don't know if excited is the right word. It's a really tough subject, <laughs> but I am really excited to connect with you and talk about this. Today, we're going to be talking all about the mother wound. 
Um, and I'll, I'll let you give a little bit of, in, of an introduction to yourself. Um, if you want to talk a bit about what the mother wound is briefly, we'll dive into it a bit later, but also how you got, how you, um, were brought to this work and a little bit about your story. That would be a great place to start. Yeah. Just prompt me, you know, ask me whatever and I'll go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So if you want to get started and talk about that, that would be awesome. Yeah. So the mother wound, um, the mother wound is a term that has been mentioned by different writers, you know, just only briefly, um, writers like Adrian Rich and Christian Northrup. And I think Susan Forward was someone who mentioned it, but no one's really fleshed out what it is, defined it, you know, what the mother wound is, how it shows up in our lives, how to, how to heal it. And so I started a blog back in 2013, um, where I really started fleshing out this concept of the mother wound. Um, the mother wound, as I define it, has three levels to it. It's a big, it's a big wound. It's personal, it's cultural, and it's spiritual. And the personal level of the mother wound is something that all of us carry, uh, men and women. And I specifically uh, work with women. Um, and the reason why we all have it to some degree is because the mother wound is a product of patriarchy, uh, basically a p- product of living in a culture that tells women that we are less than, that we are the dominant inferior sex. And so this atmosphere of oppression for women really distorts how women relate to each other, you know, and, and this, um, so in a more specific way, it's about the mother wound is the, the way that we limit ourselves, the way that we've learned to limit, hold ourselves back, feel less than, um, as a result of the interactions with our mothers. So our mothers are actually, you know, passing down either intentionally or not intentionally, um, how to survive in a patriarchy, you know, and for many, even the best mothers who are done their work and who are very healthy, um, they, in this culture, they have to help their, their daughters, you know, stay safe. So things like not rocking the boat, don't be too big, keep your voice down, you know, put others' needs before yourself, you know, all these ways of how to stay safe in a culture that doesn't value women. So that's the best case scenario is that all of us kind of get some of that. But then in the worst case scenario, and the mother wound is on a spectrum, you know, on that other side of the spectrum, um, our mother's own trauma, like her own personal family trauma that she has inherited and hasn't worked through gets also filtered down. So it's kind of like a personal and cultural traumatic, um, wound that's intergenerational and gets passed down. Um, but it's really down to those very personal, like beliefs that we have about ourselves. It's about how women relate to themselves. You know, the patterns that we've played out over and over again, that we learned, through our families and through the culture, how to survive. So it's a personal wound. We all have it. And ultimately it's not really about our mothers. It's about how we relate to ourselves, what we feel capable of in the world, how we feel about our bodies, about our voice, about um, relationships, about sexuality, about money. You know, all of these things are impacted by our mothers and the relationship with her. Um, And so we kind of get a blueprint uh, as we grow up in this culture and through our relationships with our mothers of what it means to be a woman, what's okay, what's not okay. Um, and the very things that often keep us safe as children actually end up being barriers to, you know, living as who we're really meant to be in the world. So our task, and this is something I really want to normalize, um, is the task of doing the inner work it takes to kind of deconstruct 
the patriarchy <laughs> that we've inherited to really reveal who we are and who we're here to be um, in the world, especially at this time. We're living in a really transformational time where uh, we're seeing, you know, tr- patriarchy dismantling itself in all these different areas you know, media, governments, communities, organizations, all on full display, the devastating scope of what patriarchy has wrought on us. And so it's a powerful opportunity for us to really see it, become aware of it, and then um, work through it. And so how I got to do all this, you might be wondering how I got to do it, start even talking about this issue. Um, I had a really severe mother wound myself that I've been working through for 20 years. So I, when I was 19, I got, I had an abortion and I, was like, wow, it was a big wake up call. Like, what am I going to do with my life? I feel like I'm not on the right path. But um, I really feel like that was an initiation experience because I immediately got into therapy and on a spiritual path and um, just really took my inner growth really, really seriously and and have ever since. And, um, but I avoided looking at the mother wound. I avoided looking at my relationship with my mother because I was like, that's way too scary. It's way too overwhelming no way. So I just kept working on other areas like my relationships, my career stuff. I worked through some issues I had with food, but I kind of kept my the mother relationship to the side. Um, but I noticed something. I noticed that even when I worked on different areas, it always came back to the relationship with my mother, whether it was how I felt about my body, how the kind of relationships I was attracting, it always came back to what were the beliefs that I internalized as a result of the dynamics with my mother. So they're really shaping. I started to see, wow, this is like the under, it underpins every area of my life. So I'm like, I guess I have to look at this. So I felt strong enough, um, at that point to start really, um, making it a focus. And it was really hard in the beginning, but, and there's many challenging moments I've had super challenging. Uh, and it was, I realized, you know, as I came out the other side of it, I went through a big kind of blow up where I, um, you know, I don't have contact with my family, my mother or anyone in my family, um, which was really challenging. I had to go no contact. Um, and so that was massive. But then as I came out the other side of that and into a more stable place, I realized, um, wow, no one is talking about this in the world. You know, I, I started feeling you know, as I moved through it, more connected to my body, more connected to the earth, more connected to other people. I started feeling, um, more energized, more alive, more connected with my purpose. And I'm, I saw this, there's this connection between working through our mother issues and how we show up in the world. And so I was really hungry at that point. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, let me find some books to help me like process what I'm going through. But I couldn't really find any books that really spoke to what I was experiencing that like the mother wound really um, encapsulates our power in a way that we have to actively work to get to the core of it. And so I realized, wow, I'm going to have to start writing myself. So I started a blog just really honestly for myself. I wanted to, I wanted a place where I could process what I was going through and share it with other women. And women had started coming up to me and saying, Oh my God, you know, I'm struggling with this too. And so I started getting requests to, teach, you know, workshops, um, about to women about what I had learned. Um, and I was like, yes, you know, and and so what I did was I actually created a seven step process that kind of mapped out the main steps that I took. And then I created a program so that other women could, you know, navigate this with a lot more support and just knowing where to go, like knowing what to expect as you do this. Um, because what I really feel is that, um, 
the mother relationship is, you know, nothing has the power to like limit us. <laughs> if you have like a, you know, a tough relationship with your mother and nothing has the power to limit you than that relationship. Even if you don't even speak to your mother or if it seems okay, like a great relationship, there's still things under the surface that we need to look at. And so nothing has the power to also liberate you as this relationship. Like as you work through the mother wound, you actually kind of rebirth yourself into you, who you really are. Um, and it, all of that involves, and that's this patriarchy piece. Um, all of that involves kind of subverting patriarchy because it's all about undoing all the things we've learned about how to be a good girl, how to be a, an attractive woman, how to be successful. And a lot of these things are inimical to true female power. And I really believe that we can't really be our best selves unless we look at this. I mean, honestly, the, the way the culture treats mothers is like mothers are either all good or all bad. You know, they're either blamed for everything or they're, um, kind of idealized. And so our culture has a really fucked up relationship with mothers and mothering. And there's no real place for a woman to put her real feelings about her mother, right? Because we all, like in any relationship, there's times of frustration and disappointment and sadness. But as daughters, we're taught to never look at this, never talk about it. Um, and you know, that holds us back in so many areas that we're a bad girl. If we speak our truth, if we don't, you know, there's so much to that. So this, this work that I teach, it's not about blaming our mothers at all. It's not about making our mothers wrong or, um, none of that. It's, it, it is about you. How do you show up as your most powerful self? And what are the ways that you've been taught to limit yourself as a way to be loved? to secure love, safety, and belonging. And often those are the most insidious and invisible patterns that we hold are patterns that are related to how we were mothered, how we were brought into the world. Um, so doing the work is actually what helps us to get peace and acceptance about what happened to us. And often we have to, you know, we really do have to deal with the grief of what happened to us as children. And, and that includes anger. You know, we need to feel a healthy outrage on behalf of the little girl that we were that was powerless and, you know, suffered. So part of it is um, this, the work that I teach, a central piece of it is learning how to mother yourself. I call it inner mothering work. So everybody's heard of inner child work, you know, that's been around since the seventies. And my work is um, kind of takes that a step forward in terms of how do we mother this child inside of us? So we don't replicate what we tend to do is replicate the very things that were done to us. So it's really, um, learning how to be that mother to ourselves that we always longed for. Because the truth is, even though that childhood is over and we'll never get a chance to go back and get what we needed, we can show up as um, the mother that this little girl needs now. And it's a real process of discovery and it's a skill that can be learned. And I found that over and over again, even with very high level women at the topest levels of, you know, the highest levels of success that, um, the inner mothering piece is, is what's needed to create a sense of safety within you so that you can really go beyond what I call the maternal horizon, which is where our mothers said, don't go, or they, they didn't go themselves. And that's exactly what 
needs to happen right now because life on the planet is in danger and we really need to move forward um, as women. The world needs powerful women more than ever. So we need to work through this, this barrier of the mother wound. Um, and I don't see it as only an obstacle. I think the wound is actually a birthing ground for us to move into our fully actualized self. We can't do that without looking at, you know, going through the process of getting mental clarity, doing the emotional work and the inner mothering work. So I've just you know, based on my journey, and I'm still on my journey, <laughs> you know, I'm still, um, you know, 20 years going here of weekly therapy and hard work on myself, but I'm so excited to bring other women into this amazing process so that women don't have to spend the rest of their lives kind of circling over and over the same issues. Um, and the way the mother wound shows up and Anya, is this cool that I'm just talking for? <laughs> yeah, I did. Say wa- <laughs> it, it tends to happen. Yeah, I did want to say like what you know. I talk a lot. I've been talking a lot recently on my podcast about this, um, and going back to how you got initiated into this work is this process of growing up and self actualization and these sort of like deaths of that occur during our youth, death of the self. I think what I recognized as potentially the most debilitating death in my own process of self-actualization was the fact that what I thought was reality, what I thought was a specific type of relationship as Mm -hmm. I did this work, it suddenly shifted. And then it wasn't as if that relationship changed. It wasn't as if the world around me changed, but it Mm -hmm. was because of this new awareness that I saw these things differently, such as my relationship with my mother. Um, so I, I would, if we could talk a little bit about some of this, like, how does this manifest realistically? And what are some of these stereotypes that are perpetuating the mother wound? Because I think a big problem that I ran into and that I see a lot of other women run into is not even being able to recognize what is toxic and what's not toxic. Um, yeah. so I, I know that's so broad, like to talk about all of the ways in which the mother wound manifests, but in terms of just like some very, you know, practical personal examples for me, I saw codependency as a manifestation yeah. of this. I saw my mother and other mothers, um, enacting these waif queen dynamics. I saw narcissism as a product of the mother wound. So I don't know if you have like a top three or just a few that you want to dive into, but I think really defining what that is for people, because I think because of the patriarchy, because of our culture, we're not designed to see these things as they are. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, we, we're not designed to see them. They're very invisible, but we're all suffering from them in isolation. And the mother wound shows up differently for everybody. So I just want to say that too, like there's no one way or that it shows up. It shows up differently for everyone because we've all had different experiences with our mothers. But um, there are some top, there are some top ones that I see most often. Um, the One of the biggest one is, is being the parentified daughter. You know, the the, the daughter that where the relationship was switched, where the, the daughter is kind of the caretaker emotionally of the mother. That's a huge one I see a lot. Um, and that's really sets a daughter up for some massive challenges as an adult. So things like um, emotional caretaking of other people, attracting relationships for people that like you, you're used, you're easily used and you don't realize it, right? It's like mistaking love as taking care of the child and the adult 
right? So our definitions of what love is gets forged in the mother-child relationship. And so things that we consider familiar and normal that are actually really toxic, we don't know them until they create so much suffering as an adult. So things like over-functioning, so much emotional caretaking, doing the emotional labor for other people, attracting people that don't respect your boundaries, that don't honor you. Um, Also things like competition. A lot of women feel a sense of like, you know, there's not enough So I have to, you know, always be in this anxious place of, you know, comparing themselves uh, and feeling unsafe with other women as well. Um, Some other ones that show up are like related to the parentified daughter, but that's feeling like you always have to take the high road. So feeling like emotional relationships are always your, you know, you're carrying everything that you can't have an equal partner with you, whether it's a friend or a romantic partner, um, just you doing all the heavy lifting, um, is a massive one. Um, but there's also daughters who grew up with moms who are neglectful or just unavailable and like absent. And so those kind of daughters, kind of walk around as adult women feeling like, you know, this void, like this emptiness, like, who am I? You know, I'm not good enough. Why am I not good enough? There's something wrong with me. Um, often this is something that's like in the background, right? It's just something that comes up. It's just like this lingering chronic feeling like there's something wrong with me. There's something that's not right. Um, and those are daughters who often had moms who didn't really validate them, who weren't there to show up for them, support them, um, and were just kind of emotionally checked out. And a lot of us had moms like that. Um, so that's another a huge one. Um, but I want to just r- rattle off some other kind of manifestations that show up. Um, you know, even things like depression or addictions, um, eating disorders, um, these can all have their roots in the mother wound. Um, cause first, for a second, we can take, you know, eating disorders, for example, like mother is food. And the first days and weeks of our lives, mother was food, mother was world, mother was self. So any kind of, um, and oftentimes in our homes, in the kitchen, food is love right? So the ways that we, when we're sad, if we had a mom who gave us food or maybe withheld food, um, all of these things play into how we, it's kind of like the lens through which we see the world and see ourselves is clouded or distorted based upon um, some of these traumatic experiences we have with our mothers. But the good news is as we do the work, the lens comes into more sharper resolution, kind of like what you said earlier, like you noticed Nothing changed, but your perspective changed. And so you saw things in a much sharper resolution, much more clearly. Um, and that is super empowering. And I think when women can recognize the mother wound in their daily lives, they're going to start blaming themselves less because most of us walk around in our lives blaming ourselves. What's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? You know, judging ourselves, being really hard on ourselves. When in reality, a lot of the challenges that we experience are because we went through certain things as children and we just haven't digested or worked through them. And a child will always blame itself for something that goes wrong. You know, when we're kids, we have limited cognitive development. So we'll always, the child just blames itself as a way to feel powerful. Um, so I'm kind of getting off topic here, but no, that's, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's so what I think I experienced as the most challenging with this too, in terms of this emotional, you know, um, unavailability of my mother. I I think why it was so hard for me to wrap my head around this is because when we go back to talking about the definition of love and what is love, 
Yeah. On the surface and on paper, it was like, I went to summer camp. I had a roof over my head. My mom was cooking dinner for me all the time. She would, at the drop of a hat, whenever I needed her, would drop everything and come to my rescue, right? So it was like there were these elements of quote unquote love, support, et cetera. But yet there was this void. (laughs) There was this feeling of lack, this feeling of, I don't really feel supported, even though it seems on paper like I am, right? So there's this nuance around recognizing that, you know, what what really is love? Is it these tangible things that I'm giving you? Is it these gifts? Is it the fact that I'm putting myself in a space of discomfort and that's love, right? That if I give you this, you give me that. This whole like transaction is love. Um, Not that that's a question, but I just wanted to make that comment because I, for me, I almost experienced both that it was like on paper, I saw one thing and, but my experience felt differently than that. And to come to a place where I wreck. And then, especially when I would talk to other women about it, I would, they would, it was a bit like they would get threatened as well because they started to recognize that, Oh, Oh, you're right. Like I also experienced those things, but they also don't really feel like love. And it was so taboo and so scary to go through the work of, of the grief of like, Oh, this whole thing that I thought was going on again was different than I expected. Um, yes, totally. That's very common. So many women second guess the pain they feel around their relationship with their mothers because of that very reason. You know, I had, you know, all the food, shelter, clothing, Christmas presents and birthday parties. And, you know, I had all those things. And yet, um, so there's this tendency to blame ourselves. Like there must be something wrong with me. Why do I feel like something was missing and everything looks like it was? And I think this part of this is, you know, generations in the past used to believe that children were to be seen and not heard, you know, and if if you give the child what it needs on paper, it's going to be fine. Generations of the past not value the emotional life. And, you know, they didn't think that how you felt was that important, (laughs) um, honestly. And so we are kind of the generations now realizing, wow, and even science is confirming this, that it's the emotional health of the child is what helps its development more than even food, shelter, and clothing that that trumps, um, you know, if a child has everything physically, but doesn't have an emotional, healthy environment to develop, it will suffer. It will have, you know, um, challenges. So we're really upturning a lot of the things that we've been taught. Um, especially this thing of, you know, I think a lot of our parents and grandparents grew up with this idea of um, if something is happening in the family, we just don't talk about it. And our mothers especially were the, the gatekeepers and the peacekeepers who held the secrets and, and also didn't have a place for them to talk about their experiences. So all that unresolved, undigested, unmetabolized you know, stuff often was unsaid in the air in the homes in which we lived and also got factored into the the dynamics with our parents. But it wasn't being openly talked about because, you know, that would be acknowledging a problem and people just didn't do that. I mean, it's just many people still live this way. So part of my goal is to really normalize making your inner life a priority, taking really good care of yourself, going to therapy, doing, you know, programs like mine where it helps you get the insight you need, like you were describing, to see things in high resolution, to see your life the way it really is. So that you don't spend years and years like our parents and grandparents did 
living in a state of illusion to some degree about what's real, what's not real and not having the courage. I think that's another thing I really want to normalize is having the courage to look at this stuff because it's not easy. Um, it's not easy to see that, oh, I thought this was that way and it's not. And that can be devastating, right? Because it's the foundation upon which we see our lives. So that's why support is really, really essential uh, with this work. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, let the grief involved, I mean, when you were talking reminded me of when I would, when I was started to be open about this, both within my family, but also with friends that because I had those things, food, shelter, clothing, et cetera, there was this, not only was I getting it from the outside, but I recognized the internalized voice. That was me saying, you're ungrateful. Like you had, you had all of these things and you were ungrateful. And when I made the connection between like, Oh my goodness, that's the message I'm getting from society. That's the message I'm getting from my own family, from my mother. And if I don't change this narrative that that's then going to be passed on to my kids as well. Um, Let's talk about this process though, because I think for me, one of the most meaningful aspects of doing this work, although completely isolating, unfortunately, because I didn't really have a community and Mm. super scary was grief. Mm -hmm. And I, especially grief as it relates to, you know, not a physical death. Like this right. was a big thing for me to learn to take on about the the different types of grief that exist that aren't necessarily related to somebody dying. And again, the taboo nature of, you know, grieving the loss of the idea of the mother I didn't have, the family I didn't have, the childhood I didn't have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was, it was frightening. God forbid. I I talked about that to someone who actually, who actually lost their mother, you know, whose mother wasn't alive. It was really challenging to accept that I was going through that kind of a grieving process. Um, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that with you or the women that you work with of what that looks like and why grief is so important in doing this work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Grieving is, is, you know, as the years go by, I just have so much more reverence and respect for humans grieving because it really is. I think there's even research now that's, that shows that when we grieve, it's actually what's happening in the brain is, um, you know, it's kind of reorganizing itself. It's like think connect, new connections are being made. It's, it's kind of the way our system uh, releases and processes experiences. And we've been taught that you're not supposed to feel sad, that something's wrong when you're sad and that you should hide it and not show the world. And I actually see grief as like the bravest, most badass warrior shit you can do because you're really, um, you know, processing and, and really living into a new way of being. And it is like a real death. And I, I believe that we have to kind of, in a way, treat it that way with that kind of respect. Um, and grief, you know, in my journey, I was one of those people that always put it off. I would always like, if I was feeling sad, moments of sadness, I would put it aside and try to be like, oh, I'll deal with that later. But what ends up happening was I would, it would be like, I would have this feeling of being clogged, you know, and like living my daily life and just being short or not being fully myself, I would feel flat. So grieving is really uh, the pathway into moving beyond the mother wound, you know, through it and out the other side. And so making space for it 
um, and welcoming it and setting up your life to support yourself is, is super key. And for many of us, that involves like a mindset shift of, you know, grieving is healing, feeling is healing and getting support from people who do get it. Um, I, I totally recommend finding a really good therapist and I, um, that can just help you so much. And also, coaching. Um, but in the, in the group that I have, I have like a Facebook group that comes with my course and it's a super safe space where people are grieving all the time (laughs) and sharing, like, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. This feels like hell, you know, this is really hard and, and supporting each other and being seen, like showing up as like, this is what I'm processing and then being seen and supported by other people because grief is really hard when you're doing it by yourself. You know, I think that's what you were alluding to is like, you know, trying to move through grief without much support isn't going to be sustainable in the long term. So the more you can um, rearrange your life, you know, and I'm all about taking radical steps and like, how can you set up your life so that you can actually live as your best self? And often that can be very unconventional and just allowing yourself to step into that. Like, what would it mean if I, you know, had a place in my house where I went and sat anytime I was sad and like, you know, put some special things there where I can feel safe um, and, and make a commitment to sitting there anytime I feel sadness coming up. Um, you know, that's just one little tiny example, but there's a lot of ways that you can welcome grief. And um, I have to say that it's in waves. You know, a lot of people have said, oh, can I just like cry for a year and have it be over? You know, I know I have to do a lot of grieving and I'm like, that's not really how it works. We're kind of like animals in the sense that there's an organic some, you know, process that we can't change. We have to just flow with it. So it's almost like a devotional practice more than like a training or like a thing you can do. It's more like, you know, being open to what comes up, whether it's sadness, anger, and then welcoming it with a loving curiosity and allowing it to be seen and felt and welcomed. Um, because often what's happening is, there's like frozen trauma. There's frozen feelings in our bodies that are stuck. And when we feel safe enough, they start to come out, they become revealed and whether they're insights, memories, feelings. And so we don't want to stop that flow. We want to let it flow. And because every, and this is an important thing to remember, every emotion is temporary. You know, feelings aren't permanent, but a lot of us get scared. Like if I feel these feelings, I might get flooded totally. And what if I get stuck there? And what if I can't function? You know, there's a lot of people that feel that. So just remembering that um, often the the resistance to feeling our emotions is causes the most suffering, I think, even more than the emotions themselves. So making, um, welcoming them and creating space, permission and getting support um, helps you move through them because they pass. All painful emotions pass and are temporary. And at the end of it, what comes up is an opening of more clarity, more confidence, more energy. Um, So allowing ourselves to grieve is such a good investment. I like to see it as a good investment because when you put in the time, what you get is basically a new you. You get another, you know, lot of more choices, more insight, more breakthroughs that happen. But they won't happen if we resist our grief. So, and yeah, so I'll stop there, but (laughs) yeah, I I think it goes back to what you were talking about the inner mothering too, because obviously, or for me, and I would assume for most women, one of the reasons we've not gone through this process, not totally felt our emotions is because again, 
it's sort of the mother wounded thing to do is to yeah. you know swallow all of that, not feel it. Um, and, and I remember, you know, as the process of grieving is happening, I start to realize all of the internalizations that I've got playing in my mind around mm. why I have never done this before. I remember feeling as I would have this feeling every time I started to cry that I felt like the more that I went down this path of grief, the more and more isolated I was becoming, that it was alienating me from the people and things around me, that I was going to like be moving into this place where I'd be totally alone. And my therapist just very simply was like, do you think that's how you felt as a child? Right. Where if you were to, and it was like, of course, yes. And it was such a light bulb that after kind of recognizing that and, and, uh, labeling that internalization that I could then move through it and, and mother myself in a different way. But it certainly is such, so culturally prevalent, this idea of that grief is depression, right? And therefore Mm -hmm. bad and we need to move through it and we can't have any anger. I would like to talk, let's talk about anger a little bit too, because I know Mm -hmm. that has been, it's what was very interesting to me is the moment that I could see how anger becomes addictive, addicting, because the moment I feel like I got in touch with that anger, it was as if I felt authentically myself for the first time Mm -hmm. in a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and learning how, or let's, yeah. What, what do you, what do you experience or what do you recommend as the processing of anger? And, what is healthy and unhealthy, a clean, you know, anger. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Anger is so amazing. I do believe that it is the straight line back into our authenticity, especially for women who have been taught to be nice and smile and be yielding and compliant and accommodating and all those things that erode, you know, our true voice and our true feelings. So allowing ourselves to feel anger is part of reclaiming reclaiming who we really are, reclaiming ourselves. Um, so making space for that. I've seen so I've worked with so many women and like, I can see people through all these different parts of the journey with anger. It's like, there's this resistance. Like, I don't want to be angry. My mother was angry and I don't want to be like that, you know? So this is just like this wanting to stay away from it, um, which is very common. But then I find that, you know, seen this over and over again, when women get in touch with their anger, there's a massive corner that gets turned there's like the before anger and then there's like the after anger, especially that first contact with the anger about what you went through when you were a child. And what I've seen, I've seen is the most healthy expression of anger is when you can, especially in the context of inner mothering is when you can help. Well, let me say it a different way. When you can see how you suffered as a child, as a little girl, and you can feel a healthy outrage on behalf of that little girl, like that wasn't okay. What happened? Right. And what you're doing in that moment is you're stepping outside of that child, like kind of fantasy of what happened when you were a child. Like most of us, the people that haven't done a lot of work on themselves are kind of seeing life through a child's eyes. Like this is what happened. But the moment that you can separate a little bit and you can be your adult self and see that little child that you were and really take in. And of course it takes time, but take in the magnitude you know, of what you went through, how you suffered, how you, you know, were struggling, how you were alone, um, whatever degree that was true for you. And then to be like, fuck that, that was not okay. That was wrong. That, that should not have happened. And it's not like you're actively blaming your parents in a way, but you're more like that wasn't okay. 
But the truth is your parents were the responsible party. So it's important to put that anger where it belongs. You know, like I'm angry that, you know, my mother didn't do this or that because this is the cost that it's had in my life. You know, so that's real is really looking at what you went through and then allowing yourself to feel anger and then putting that anger there, like processing your anger there, whether it's writing in a letter to your mother that you'll never send, whether it's, you know, speaking out and processing anger too has so many great creative ways you can work with anger, which I can talk about later. But my point here is that you want to get to what your anger is really about because a lot of people walk around with anger that, and they don't know where the anger is really about. They actually misplace what the anger is. For example, we can get triggered when we're with our partner or with a coworker or something. They do something and it's just like, oh my God, the anger is so big. Usually there's something else under the surface. 99% of the time, there's something under the surface that's about what you went through as a child that's trying to come up. So if you can, I try to help people get really skilled at quickly seeing that and then linking what is this anger really about and then process the anger towards the true source, which is what you went through as a child. And if you can do that, you can burn through anger. You can use anger as the catapulting force that it really is, which helps you get to that clarity, that confidence, that energy, that sense of self-worth. Um, because if we just spin our wheels about anger, about the surface level, we're not really getting to the core and that anger will keep popping up <laughs> um, all over the place. Yeah. Well, and that didn't keep popping up. Like the way that I saw it too, is if I wasn't getting in touch with my anger and expressing it properly, that all it was doing was being turned inward. It wasn't like it wasn't existent, right? It was there. Oh, like the, yeah. <laughs> the anger is buried. So it's like, it's going to come out somehow. And instead of putting it on myself, I'm this terrible person. I'm ungrateful. I, right. It, we have to finally release that yeah. ourselves and express it outwardly. Um, so I think let, the diff, the most difficult part for me about the mother wound. And I think for a lot of women are dealing with the practical manifestations of doing this work. So for me, I got to a place where I decided I could no longer be in touch with my mother. <laughs> um, uh -huh. And that was whether or not that lasts for a long time, I don't know, but I certainly, mm -hmm. it was, it, it, I always made the um, parallel to like, if I was an alcoholic, I'm not going to go hang out at the bar. Um, right. so it was like, again, it wasn't so much her. It was that I knew that in order to write a new story, to change some of these internalizations, to mother myself in a different way than I was mothered, that I needed to take a break from the alcohol that was poisoning me up until this point. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was not only, you know, incredibly challenging for me to do personally. Yeah. It also completely caused a domino effect throughout my family because I think yeah. the way that the relationship we have with our mom, you know, that extends to our entire family dynamic. So because I was the person that was the caretaker, was the mother, that in my absence, that got put on someone else. Um, and that caused a huge wave of trauma within the family that is still being worked through. Um, let, I just want to talk about that because it's so taboo uh, to decide that we need to take a break from our mother. Um, mm -hmm. And I would love to hear what you say to women and uh, in what way we can help other women recognize that 
it's okay to make that decision and that it's healthy and that they don't have to feel guilty. And in fact, doing that is probably the most loving thing that they could do, especially for themselves and future generations. Absolutely. Well said. Um, yes, I'm a no contact person myself and I've know I've helped many women through this process and it's one of the hardest things, you know, it's one of the hardest things to go through and it's often the end result of a long process of trying to make it work, trying to get, you know, this to work, this relationship. Um, and what I found is that the, the, it usually comes down to a place where a woman sees that, it's just way too much cost to her well-being to continue. That there's such a, a weight, a burden um, to her own life and her own health to continue the relationship. And especially, there's usually the mother is not taking responsibility, not, you know, working with the daughter. It's just like a one-way thing. So that's usually when women take that step of, I literally can't be in this relationship anymore. And um, I do see it as one of the most bravest decisions and essential, deeply essential, especially in some of these severe um, situations. Um, and even not so severe, it becomes down to self-love. Like I love myself so much that I'm not going to put myself in harm's way. So um, I like to say that, you know, going no contact is one of the hardest things you might go through, but it's also can be one of the most empowering. If you can really see it as, um, a gift to yourself and the whole process, there's usually like, you know, many phases after you make that choice. And those things involve, you know, setting the boundary, how you communicate with that, and then dealing with the, the time that after post no contact, how you're feeling, because usually that's a time when the inner child is like, Oh my God, we just did the scariest thing. <laughs> you know, am I going to be okay? Am I a bad person? So some of those things can come up. Um, and so it's really key to, you know, support yourself with as many things. This is when I tell women to get like as many ways you can support yourself as possible so that you can really be present in those moments when a trigger comes up or a fear and you can really say, Oh my God, rather than spinning your wheels and questioning yourself, blaming yourself, you can stay the course because as you go down that path, what I've seen is you actually, your life improves hugely. Even within weeks or months, you can start to feel, oh my God, I feel more energy. I feel more lighter. I feel, um, you know, empowered and I feel, um, more connected, more present. Um, so that's, that will show up. And then there'll also be really hard moments. Um, I can tell you one woman who I worked with, she, she went no contact with her parents. And then after about like six months, she started feeling like some regret. And this is very common. You can start to feel like, oh, did I do the right thing? Cause I'm so happy now. And you look back and you're like, maybe I can make it work now. Maybe they changed. Um, and so one day she was going through this. She was like questioning herself. She was wondering, she had children. Should my children have contact with their grandmother? Um, and she came across this email that she had printed out from her mother. And it was an email that was full of just toxicity you know, manipulation, name calling, all of it. And as soon as she saw this email, she was like, wow, that's why I did what I did. And I'm so glad I did that. And I'm not going back. So it's, it's a matter of finding ways to remind yourself. So what I had her do was put together like a binder 
uh, including that email and some other emails, but then also having some really positive, exciting things that helped her feel strong so that she could every day take a look in this binder, you know, kind of like an inspiration binder and know that she's doing the right thing for her. So I think it's for going no contact, you want to be really articulate with yourself about what are the reasons you're doing it, why this is the right choice for me. And also keep a list by you of all the, the shitty things you've gone through with your family that didn't work out because our, we can forget. We can forget over time. So reminding yourself, and it's really just a way of saying, this is the right choice for me. Yeah. Um, that can help you move forward. <laughs> Another thing I would say is talk to people who get it limit exposure to people who have their own mother wounds that they're not working on because those people will, will be so triggered by your choice to go no contact that they will, um, you know, they'll question you, they'll criticize you. They'll bring in all those things of, Oh, she's your only mother or, you know, how could you? And, you know, those kind of things that can really send you on a spiral. And so it's a very fragile time, but it's a very precious, precious time because you're, in the process of giving birth to yourself, you're changing intergenerational patterns. You're going against the status quo and the patriarchy in your family of, you know, don't speak, you know, play that role, stay where you're supposed to be. Um, you, you're really stepping beyond all that. And that is massive. That's amazing. And it's not for the faint hearted, you know, you're doing a massive thing. So giving yourself all the support that you can and limiting your exposure to people who don't get it is really key, especially during those I'd say like six months after making that choice. And then with time, you know, grief will come up here and then, but um, learning to see it as not something that's wrong. Like you said, like being sad doesn't mean that something's wrong. It just means that you're healing and you're growing and just being present for it is all you really need to do. Yeah. 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 And I, I mean, certainly this idea of how, you know, I, I guess expecting the fallout too, like, and that was something I think a lot of people aren't prepared for yeah, the, <laughs> backlash. <laughs> the backlash. Yeah. Um, and ex so expecting that. And then for me, I also recognized how recognized, making that decision with my mom, my mom mm -hmm. that it then, that it then, Oh, I'm echoing. Oh, I'm echoing. I think I can't hear you anymore. Can you hear me now? Oh, yes, I can. Okay. I okay. Think I fixed it. Good. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah. So the fallout and then seeing how the relationship with my mom was mirrored in so many other relationships. Yeah. Cause you can really see it after your mother's out of your life. It no longer becomes about your mother. Does it? It becomes about, Oh my God, these dynamics are present in my relationships with my friends, my partner, you know? Right. Yeah. And going back to that sort of like death of reality, it became quite clear that like, oh shit, okay, I've been like dating my mother my whole life. I married my mother. Like all my friends are mimicking that relationship and, and setting that boundary with her. I think was, that was probably the first time that I'd really learned what a boundary was, how to set it, felt confident in my decision to take that break. And then that decision actually enabled me to, to set those boundaries and take care of myself or eliminate other sorts of toxic relationships that were present down the line. Um, and simultaneously, although I think we all go through this phase where it's this recognition of like, this is unhealthy, this is healthy. And that's, I mean, it's been two years for me now. Like it's, and that's still a process. It's still yeah. taken a long time for me to engage with people, um, both romantically, just as friends and recognize like, oh, right, this is what love and support feels like. And this is what it doesn't feel like. Um, and that's 
a long, a long process that I think requires a lot of patience and care, you know? Yeah. Um, totally. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. so other than cutting contact with, uh, one's mother, are there any other sort of practical manifestations that you see doing this work where culture or society, um, can really sabotage this process. Um, I don't know what those might be, but wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Um, yeah, well, I think the biggest one, Anya, is the cultural norms of you have to love your mother no matter what. Mm. That like, you know, that's the biggest enforcer. Um, Kate Millett, one of our feminist foremothers said that, you know, the family is patriarchy's key institution. So, that's a place where, you know, that whole thing of even religion, like honor your father and mother, um, you're ungrateful, an ungrateful daughter. You know, I have a whole part of my program that talks about the step, the myths and stereotypes that prevent us from looking at this work that keeps us away from our power. And it's all about shaming us, you know, especially as children, our, our culture does not value children. Children are very much a marginalized, the most marginalized, um, group in our society, you know, because they have no resources, they're powerless, they're dependent. Um, they're not really seen as people and especially female children. So there's this whole cultural, like way of looking at female children's experiences and male children as well as, you know, frivolous, it doesn't matter. You know, um, the children are to be seen and not heard. Um, don't disrespect your parents. These are present in every, you know, institution in, in some form. So I think that's the biggest, the, that's the biggest thing is looking at how, how we feel shamed for the truth of our feelings and to make a real conscious effort to not take that on, see that for what it is and, and don't internalize it. If you feel yourself coming up with that, you want to work with it. Um, that's why I have it in step two of my program, because I really want people to get really familiar with what are the things that hook you, you know, what are the things that cause you to feel shame? Because you want to look at those so that they don't have the power that they do when they're unexamined and can just pop up at any time and make you feel, you know, stop you in your tracks, make you question yourself. Um, and these are things that our mothers and grandmothers believed, you know, I think, you know, um, when I went through my whole kind of family implosion. When I stopped being the caretaker, there was so much rage directed at me because I was the caretaker one. Um, but when I said, I'm not going to do that anymore, I remember feeling my mother's rage. And I feel like there was something from her that was like, I did this and you need to do it too. Like I suppressed all my rage. I suppressed, you know, my voice and why aren't you doing it? Like, that's what you're supposed to do as a woman. You're supposed to be silent. You're supposed to suck it up. You're supposed to you know, put everybody before you, how dare you? And I could feel the rage of her suppression. And it was just like this Pandora's box of rage that really wasn't about me. It was kind of about her own mother and about the culture, I think in general. So I think it's such a gift as young women to not do that, like to literally make a place, a point of, I'm not going to suppress my voice, suppress my truth, my needs as has been done by generations before me. Allow yourself to be the radical one that says a big middle finger to that. Like, I'm not going to do that because we do pass it down and it's living in us. Even those of us who are the most evolved or free among us have those moments where that comes up. So I think 
becoming aware of what hooks you into shame and, and kind of developing a, a real mindset around actively pushing against that. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think this, this idea that we're fed that in cutting contact in deciding we're going to step away from this mother daughter relationship intimately, like this has nothing to do with blaming our mothers or no. being angry with them around what happened. It's that we really like this, this idea of responsibility and blame, right? That perhaps they didn't take on that responsibility. It was passed down to us. And now in order for us not to pass that down to future yeah. that we have to take responsibility for it. And in doing so, it means we do have to cut ourselves off. But like I have, you know, talking about a safe space in my house where I grieve. I mean, I definitely have that. And I've got, it's not just the grief that we're feeling for our own life and our own loss, but it is our mother's loss and their yeah. mother's loss and the loss of their, right. And, and to be clear about that, especially if people are attacking us for, you know, that we're ungrateful and that, you know, we're not being respectful of the people that raised us, that in fact, what we're doing is the most respectful thing that we can do. Um, and what it looks like on the surface is maybe not so much what it looks like in practice, but again, it's hard. And if you don't have the spaces and the people surrounding you to kind of uplift you in that process, it can be very disorienting. Um, and, and again, just trigger all of those internalizations that you were fed your whole life of your, this ungrateful bitch and blah, 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 blah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I like to say that we, we need to learn how to kind of anoint the parts of us that were pathologized by patriarchy, you know, we're not going to get a pat on the back for doing this. The most of the world doesn't value this yet. And it's going to take many generations. I think of us doing the work before, you know, things will really start to change, but we have to stay the course, stay the path. And, um, I totally agree. We're grieving, not just for ourselves, but for all the women. I mean, what an utter waste, um, and I think that's, that's one of the things I say to people is like, there's such a cost to not doing this work, you know, generations of women's brilliance and gifts just not being brought to the world because of these mandates that we've been taught. So, um, it's, it's enormously tragically sad that, you know, some have to, we have to say no to our families and no to contact in order to really heal and I, um, I just feel so much, um, respect, so much respect for, for women who have to make this, this choice, um, because it's not an easy path, but it's such a rewarding path because your life starts to become really your own. You know, some people can be in their families and heal the mother wound. Some, you know, it can work for some of us, but for some of us, we need that total disconnection, um, to do the, the real healing work. And what an opportunity because you can really unleash you know, yourself into the world, into your life in a really powerful, unattenuated way. And I think that's really exciting. And we need more women who are willing to do the work. And, and, and so the more of us that do the work though, the more of us, we can support each other. And I think create a new culture for women around, yeah, putting our inner work first and healing the mother wounds so that we can, we can really change things for the women of the future. Yeah. 
I think this speaks too to this. The, I just the the broader sense of patriarchy and the roles of both men and women in this system. I'm mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you get pushback. I know I do when I talk about this stuff. That there's such an inclination to point fingers at men. It's the patriarchy after all, and men are perpetuating it. And it's a lot easier to point our fingers at the. Uh, the stuff that's being perpetuated on, on behalf of men and not women. And I always think like, well, who are the women raising the men? You know, like, how are we participating in this dynamic? Mm-hmm. Do you get some of that, that there's some resistance? Cause I see this work as very much the work that women need to do in regard to the patriarchy. And I found that in focusing on that for myself and in speaking outwardly about that, that it leads to, a lot of fear. Um, again, this idea of taking responsibility without taking the blame. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm assuming you see this, obviously this work of women as part of healing the patriarchy, but do you come up against some issue there with women who are that it's challenging to take our own responsibility within this larger process because we have been the, um, marginalized group, I suppose. Mm. I mean, yeah, I've definitely had, I think more from older women, Hmm. this, um, a little pushback on, you know, oh, your mother gave you life. Like all the same shit we just talked about earlier. I get more of that from women who, you know, um, they are very triggered, like super triggered by the idea that their mothers weren't perfect, that, that mothers could do something wrong. Mothers already get the blame for everything. You know, why are you talking about this? You know, it's just adding more load to women. Um, but to be honest, I haven't had that many people push too hard on with me on that. Um, I think it's cause I, I try to put forward as often as possible that this is something that will actually, this is all about mothers and women and upholding them, uplifting them and really giving them the supreme level of respect that they deserve for giving life. But until we are the ones that have to do that though, we can't wait for men or the culture to finally realize kind of like an impossible dream, right? One day they're going to get it. Um, we have to fight for this. This is an inner work, the inner work that we do sets in motion the outer changes that we want to see it always starts on the inner. So, but, but, you know, past generations are not conditioned to see it that way. It's all about looks and how things look on the outside. And, um, when we know now that that's not true, that all that shit that was put under the carpet is stuff that's been, you know, clogging us. So we're like ready to shed that. Um, but in terms of men, um, I have a lot of men who are interested in my work and who want to heal their mother wound and realize that that's part of the legacy that they've gone through. Um, I have an article called uh, The Mother Wound, The Missing Link in Understanding Misogyny that looks at how the mother wound and misogyny are linked and um, how the mother and father, you know, transmit patriarchy to the son and to the boy and how he has to disown parts of himself in order to be a man and that the mother is active in that, um, what her role is. And, and actually, um, she's not always active in that. A lot of times she's seen as the lost source, you know, the, the woman, the lost mother. And the, and the, the, for some men, it's trying to either 
express anger towards their mother. And that's how misogyny gets played out is hating women and degrading women is part of the anger at the mother that they haven't been able to make conscious. And also idealizing women too, is this longing for the feminine, longing for softness, longing for permission to be real, to be honest, to be authentic, all the things that patriarchy, um, kind of, um, yeah, it tells men they can't have access to. So it's complicated. It's complex, but it's really interesting. My hope is that as the work on the mother wound, as I'm bringing it forth, it gets on a larger scale, that it will be a bridge that can really bring together all of us trying to <laughs> heal from the patriarchy, men, women, people of all different walks of life, because it really is a core thing that we all share to some degree. And it holds within it the very shifts we need in order to, you know, the insights and the breakthroughs we need individually to make that collective change and make that collective shift. And ultimately I see it as a a way to birth a whole new level of compassion. You know, as we get in touch with what we went through as children, we get this just enormous sense of empathy and tenderness about who we were and about who all of us are as struggling little humans in the world that we're all walking around with, with a lot of pain. And when we can really feel that level of pain and feel that compassion for ourselves, I believe that that pain births us into a new level of consciousness about how we're all interconnected and we're all, you know, we all have the capacity to heal and, and to grow together. Amazing. I think that's like such a mic drop moment. I feel like we should end there because that was awesome. And I totally agree. I talk a lot about this whole idea of fixing yourself to fix the world and see so clearly how my own internal work and coming to terms with all of this immediately transferred into a desire to, I mean, hello, I have a podcast called a millennials guide to saving the world, but like, that's really where it went. It was like, once I was able to do that work, once I was able to deal with my own shit, I was, it opened me up then to being able to deal with and address the issues of our world. And I think, I totally think that's where, what we're here to do. I see that as such a meaningful part of, of this work. So I'm really glad you addressed that. Um, Great. great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love Um, it. The last two questions I have um, are if you could recommend a book, it could be about this, but just a book that was really instrumental for you in your own journey. I know there's probably hundreds of books. I read a lot, but if there's one that you could recommend, it doesn't have to be about the mother wound, just anything that was really... Can I recommend two? Yes. Yes, you can. (laughs) Um, And then secondly, where can people find you? Awesome. So the, the two books that have been the most instrumental to me, like immediately... One is, um, the first one I read was, it's called The Hungry Self by Kim Chernin. And it really talks about mothers and daughters. And it's a little bit more about eating and like how food and eating is part of the mother-daughter relationship. But she really, she really helped me crystallize my ideas around society and culture and that influence on mothers and daughters. Um, so The Hungry Self it's from the the eighties and seventies by Kim Chernin, one of my heroes. It's an incredible book. Please read that. And the other one I would recommend for those of you who are actively kind of working through this is, um, a book by a woman named Yasmin Lee Corey, and it's called the emotionally absent mother. And it's something I recommend women, you know, read who take my course. Um, I have a book coming out in 2020, um, which will be about the mother wound. And I'm really excited about that. So I will let you know when that's out. But in the meantime, I would say those two books, um, are great. Another one is of woman born by Adrian rich. Um, that's I think from the seventies or eighties too, but super like radical feminist 
you know, thought on women in society and how women are treated and how that impacts trickles down to how we see ourselves. So, mm-hmm. um, another, or another great one. Um, you can find me at motherwound.com, motherwound.com. I have a ton of articles and resources, interviews, eBooks, a lot of stuff you can check out. And I also offer an online course as well as private coaching. And I've just today, um, I'm, I'm offering a new thing called emergence now, which is going to be a membership site, very low, like 20 bucks a month, but it's going to be all about how do we emerge from patriarchy in our daily life? And I'm going to have thought leaders come and do talks. I'm going to be offering little mini courses. And it's a place where you can really engage in an in-depth conversation with women around the world. And you're going to get resources on how, like, how do we really step out of this in our daily life? Because I believe it's those private, unglamorous moments within ourselves that we really do the dismantling. It's not necessarily when we're marching in the streets, although, you know, that's definitely part of it. But we really do the work of dismantling in our relationships and how we show up in our daily life. So I really wanted to create something that's easily accessible and super international and helps women, you know, do the work every day. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of that. I haven't checked out any of those books, so I'm going to have to do that myself. (laughs) Um, Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Perhaps we can talk again in the future. This topic is is endlessly fascinating to me. So I appreciate all of your insight and sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me, Anya. And it was great hearing from you and like a little bit more of your story and, um, it's fantastic to hear what you're doing. And um, I'm sure your listeners are benefiting so much from your wisdom and all the work that you've done. So it's, it's really cool to get to know you and get to know what you're doing. And um, yeah, absolutely. Let's stay in touch. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Hello again. Thanks for sticking around. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode. If you would like to support the show and get access to weekly columns of inspiration, t-shirts, solo episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates. As I mentioned at the beginning, this month's solo show is going to be a bit of a extension on this episode, so I'm going to talk more about the mother wound and patriarchy and maybe even delve into topics like the Me Too movement, dun dun dun. Um, But yeah, I have a lot to say about that. I think we need more women with different opinions talking about some of these things, so I'm going to delve into that. Um, Otherwise, thank you for listening, as always. I really appreciate it. And uh, perhaps the next time I record a show, I will be back in the States. Shed a fucking tear. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, if anyone has any questions or any recommendations for Bali, certainly hit me up. It's been a really amazing time. And I definitely hope and plan to spend more time here in the future and recommend it to all of you. So until next time, talk soon. Okay.
mío 